Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. These are, to say the least, not hospitable times for cultivating the mental skill of patience. Instant gratification has perhaps never been more thoroughly scaled. You can order food, taxis, shampoo, votive candles, whatever you want immediately from your phone. Streaming services autoplay the next episode of whatever show you happen to be binging. You can ask Siri or Alexa for the weather, the latest sports scores, or the dating history of Paul Rudd. And on a deeper level, of course, global tumult is trying our patience all the time with the pandemic, political polarization, climate disruption, and cultural upheaval over race, gender, and more. My guest today comes to us armed with a whole barrel full of great tools we can use to exercise a muscle that, for many of us, is badly atrophied. As you will hear him explain, the Buddhist approach to patience goes way beyond grin and bear it. Instead, it's about developing a mind that can work in a positive way with whatever is bothering us. Zigar Kontrol Rinpoche grew up in a monastic environment in northern India. His father was said to be the third incarnation of a great Tibetan master. His mother was actually his first teacher. She was a renowned practitioner who completed 13 years of solitary retreat before she got married. Kontrol Rinpoche now lives here in the U.S. in southern Colorado, where he has a mountain retreat center called Longchen Jigme Samtan Ling. His students include former guests on this show, such as Pema Chodron, who's a best-selling Buddhist author, and Kontrol Rinpoche's own wife, Elizabeth Mattis Namgyal, herself an author. Rinpoche has a new book. It's called The Peaceful Heart, The Buddhist Practice of Patience. And in this interview, we talk about how to define patience from a Buddhist lens, what practices he suggests for getting better at patience, the difference between patience and passivity, the challenges he still faces in the patience arena, and the role of patience in both eating and in enduring physical pain. One thing to share, though, before we dive in here. Recently, I was reflecting on a conversation I had earlier this year with Lama Rod Owens, who's a, a brilliant meditation teacher. He also wrote a book called Love and Rage. And we were talking about the importance of establishing a meditation practice during good times. I think this is a quote from Bruce Lee, where he says that in crisis, we don't rise to our expectations, but we fall to our training. I don't think that's precisely the quote, but it, that's the gist, that in a crisis, we are only embodying our training. I think sometimes we sit and say, okay, well, in a crisis, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to be really clear, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know exactly what to do. But when a crisis happens, actually what happens is I just fall into my practice. Whatever my practice was before the crisis, that's where I'm at. So if I don't have a practice, <laughs> then it's very difficult. My teachers always said, you know, it's really important to practice during the good times. Practice really hard during the good times, during the times where there's not a crisis, where you're not overwhelmed. Really take advantage of those times because when something really happens, then sometimes we don't have the space to consciously say, okay, I'm going to pay attention to my thoughts. I'm going to create spaciousness and all of that. Sometimes we just don't think about it. I play that clip because if you're in a position where you're starting to feel like you have your feet back under you, maybe you've even had them back under you for a while, now could be a great time to start building that level of practice that can catch you when inevitably you're buffeted by crises, whether big or small. As you know, I talk on this podcast quite a bit about our companion meditation app on that app, which is really my baby. I love that app. You can find guided meditations and also video slash audio courses, all of them featuring some of the world's best teachers and scientists. You can also find short talks, which are filled with relatable wisdom on topics ranging from happiness to anxiety and beyond. We also have one-on-one -on -one coaching from really experienced meditators, and those folks can help you keep your practice consistent and of a high quality. Right now, we're offering 40% off the price of a year-long subscription to the app. The offer lasts until June 1st. Hopefully, this discount will give you 
a nudge if you, if you need one. Uh, of course, nothing is permanent. So uh, as I said, the deal ends on June 1st. And if you want to get it, go to 10percent.com slash May. That's 10% one word all spelled out dot com slash May for 40% off your subscription. Okay, here we go now with Zigar Control Rinpoche. Rinpoche, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Dan. It's great to be here and it's an honor to be here in your show. It's an honor to have you. So the new book is about patience, something that we all need right now, especially in the middle of a pandemic. How do you define patience? Generally speaking, when we speak of uh, patience, it is sort of understood largely as a green and bare with whatever is happening. But in the Buddhist teachings, in the Buddhist uh, practice, of course, maybe initially, uh, you might have to kind of uh, do that a little bit while you are being agitated or while you are being irritated and while you feel sort of you need to kind of react. When you pass beyond that point, if you could just uh, be present with what's happening in your uh, physical, in the mental level, and in the emotional level, then the patience is much to do actually with how do you actually constructively respond to the situation. Now, his oldest Dalai Lama always uh, quotes this from this very book. Uh, if there's something you could do, why to worry or why to lose your temper? If there is nothing you could do, then what's the benefit? So you come to sort of explore your own sort of internal innate wisdom to see whether there is something that you could remedy. And if there is something you could remedy, then try to sort of get on with that skillful means and wisdom and then not to lose yourself to the kind of emotion of self-destructive or any kind of painful state of anger or resentment or even if you don't lash it out of course if you lash it out then it's going to be much more problematic but even if you don't lash it out if you just kind of stay in that state you know it sort of eats up a lot of your own peace and a lot of your own sense of well-being so you know try to sort of move on with what you could do to kind of remedy the situation and then come to the other side. So it's a much to do with, you know, applying yourself to kind of find the solutions rather than sort of be stuck with the emotion. Now, if there's nothing you could do, and if it is a situation that what we all have recently for this last uh, some months now found to be sort of in the situation, then, you know, we try to relax and try to accept the situation for the time being and do ourselves best to kind of, uh, if you have hobbies or if you have some other things that you kind of have kept in the background for you to do, then maybe try to sort of engage in those things and then try to see whether you could have time to accomplish that. And uh, for the meditators, then I think this is also, you know, however, it has been a really a tremendous tragedy for the world and for all of us. It is also an opportunity for us to deepen our own meditation practice. So the patience here is more to do with sort of an application of yourself with your mind and your emotions rather than just green and bare with the situations. Though, of course, initially you might have to start a little bit that way because something happens and then you can't immediately sort of uh, get on with the internal process. But what's happening in the initial even process, if you have a, some practice of patience, you could sort of know that is how you begin. So you could find some value in that experience of maybe feeling a little bit like a worked up, you know. You could sort of, instead of rejecting it, you could feel confidence in yourself that in time it will subside, in time it will go away, in time you will work through this. So this is a sort of not a bad thing. It's actually a beginning of strengthening your own mind and your own spirit and your own practice of patience. Let me just repeat back to you some of what I heard just to make sure that I've got it. It sounds like you're defining patience as the ability to be with whatever's coming up in our mind right now 
in a way that we don't react blindly to it, but we can make a sensible, wise decision rather than just being yanked around by whatever's happening. Absolutely. I think that's a really a very good way to put it. And then also, you know, what arises in the moment, also not to kind of reject it and find some value in that, you know. Usually when we do lose our patients or when we get agitated, there's two things going on. One, you know, we feel like uh, uh, we need to react. Another, we don't like what's happening inside of ourselves. So if you don't react and if you don't have that kind of resentment towards the experience itself and have some kind of a positive value for what's happening in one's experience as a stepping stone to get beyond that and get yourself stronger and also much more sort of resolved with more sort of insight into how you could change yourself and how you could change your pattern of reaction then I think, you know, it's in a presentation of an opportunity. So it's an opportunity to practice. If something powerful comes up, we have an opportunity to be with it instead of doing our habitual thing. Yes, absolutely. Of course, not. A, I'm saying with any kind of claim that I have perfected the patience, but sometimes something happens and you feel a little bit annoyed or you feel a little bit agitated and you feel little bit of an aggressive, you know, that moment or that period of time, if you just simply know that in time it will subside, in time you know you will be able to work through this, in time you will be able to be stronger to overcome this emotion rather than become this emotion and uh, act out badly, when I can then with that kind of in a conscious awareness as what's happening with my experience, then the experience softens, you know. It doesn't go away right away, but it softens and it becomes much more sort of not compulsive. And then most of the time, through the kind of a self-reflection and deeper sort of solicitation of your own kind of a wisdom to know how to approach the situation in the best way possible, then you find a solution and then you're so happy that you haven't reacted, you haven't made a mess, and you haven't caused pain to your own self and to others, most importantly. And then, you know, the relationship is preserved, no any bridges are burnt, and, uh, you know, so much happier that you have not reacted. So that initial phase is a sort of a very critical, I think. What practices do you recommend for those of us who are aware we need to develop our patients? I think a breathing technique in the moment and then taking time off to kind of have some space and time to kind of settle your mind and emotions without feeling urged to react right away and feeling kind of a immediately you need to do something to sort of overcome that what's going on inside When you do that, most of the time, it makes it worse. So if you just take time to kind of either work through with your own innate wisdom or subside, I think everybody has a lot of potential in that way. A lot of the times it's just, you know, not really that deep of an anger or that deep of an emotion, of an aggression by various circumstances. It's not only related to what you think. It could be your own physical fatigue or your own lack of sleep that contributes to, you know, your sensitivity or your reactivity. So uh, you're annoyed or you're irritated or you're a little bit snappy. And if you take time to kind of sort out and come to know what's going on, you would not really uh, find so much, in my uh, view, my greatest sort of hope is that people really, instead of looking at the patient's practice as a passive approach, patience is a, a really a opposite of that. It's a very proactive and it's a very constructive uh, practice and it's a very conscious practice of uh, strengthening your mind and your emotions to not succumb to the various factors that sort of like makes you lose your temper and 
lose yourself in that moment. Well, I completely agree that patience is not passivity. It's not letting people walk all over you and not doing anything about it. It's about being able to work with your own emotions, which is the opposite of passive. It's extremely challenging and also beneficial to you and everybody around you. But I do want to see if I can dig deeper with you on meditation practices that we can use to develop this capacity, because I think by now, having listened to what you've said thus far, everybody will be sold on the value of patience and instead will be in a space where people are questioning, well, how do I get this? Yeah, I think uh, uh, in the Buddhist teachings, especially in the Mahayana Buddhist teachings, to have this sort of a tender heart towards all humanity, just this recognition of how we are all in the same boat, and there's no really a differences between yourself and uh, others, uh, 7 billion or almost 8 billion people on the planet now. The differences, however, seemingly is there, is just in the outside, in the inner makeup of, of who we really are, wishing to be happy and longing to be free from suffering. There's no difference. So therefore, you know, this uh, notion of uh, having us... Uh, as much as possible, uh, kind of a universal uh, love as you have it for yourself, for all mankind, and then try to cultivate that sort of a tender heart with the prayers and actively wishing all beings and all human beings, particularly here on the planet, to find happiness, freedom from suffering and pain. That is uh, really the greatest valuable thing that we have in our human consciousness to achieve and to preserve. I once heard a Sufi master was asked by a student, what's heaven? And the master said, love in your heart. And then the student asked, what's hell? Lacking that in your heart. So, you know, that being the kind of a essential thing, now, if you have that, then you have all of the happiness inside of you. And uh, there may be some other conditions that can enhance that. But essentially, you have all the happiness that you can ever experience inside of you. So that being kind of the overall training, which of course, it's going to take some time and it's going to have some transformation needed. So... I mean, there's a value for patients on its own, but there's more value for patients if you actually have the patience to kind of protect that heart of yours in the first place, to have a sort of a, an ongoing tender heart or tender love towards all humanity. So I would really encourage in the Buddhist uh, practice, the Madhya practice, or the karuna practice as a sort of a foundation for the patients to be also um, done. Can you say more about what uh, those practices entail, karuna and maitreya? The maitreya practice is uh, the sense of a wish for all humanity to be happy. When you first actually think, or may all humanity to be happy, may all human beings who are like myself on the earth to be happy, you might actually, you know, not feel so much. But then when you look at inside, how you are always sort of like a longing that kind of an happiness. And then if you could sort of like emanate the same kind of an emotion to accompany that wish for all humanity to be happy, and then have the same longing being transferred to all human beings who are on the planet, who are, for example, in this situation with the pandemic, to be also happy, happy in this case, you know, to be able to be free from this situation and uh, threat and be able to come back to the life as a normal and uh, how it was before. So that would be the Maitreya practice. And then Karuna would be more like uh, those who are suffering, you know, those who are suffering. We know there are a lot of people who are suffering right now with the loss of family members and loss of friends and uh, loss of parents or children in this time. So, you know, um, to feel their sort of a 
sense of a loss and the pain, and then uh, hopefully to kind of join them in their sort of state for them to be able to kind of uh, relieve from that pain in time with being able to kind of uh, move forward and also to be able to, you know, move forward with the grievances from the loss of loved ones, whatever the implications of that loss has affected them personally, how to have a sort of sense of being able to move beyond that. That would be more karuna, so connecting with the sort of state where they are and then wishing them to be able to find a peace beyond that. On this show, we've talked a lot about, you know, practicing friendliness or loving kindness and also karuna or um, compassion meditation. So listeners, at least the ones who've been around for a minute, will be familiar with those practices. But just so I understand how you teach it, so with what you're calling a Maitreya practice or a friendliness or a loving kindness practice, you would sit and generate the wish that you yourself be happy, and then you would turn that wish out to all beings. And similarly, with karuna or compassion practice, you would try to generate the feeling that all beings be free from suffering, and then when the feeling wanes, you just try to re-up it. Or is there more to the practice as you teach it? Absolutely. I think you said it very eloquently and in a very succinct And sometimes when you don't feel so much the emotion, you know, if you look at it inwardly, uh, how you long happiness, then you have an example what you must have in a uh, loving kindness for others as well. And then if you don't feel karuna, when you turn inwardly and then how you long to be free from your own pain, you have an example right there to sort of uh, emulate for others. So using yourself as a reference to project that same emotion for the others does the work of transforming your own self-centered mind and the habitual mind. So that's also very valuable. You've been studying meditation for many, many years, and you've just finished this book on patience. I'm curious, where is the edge for you? Where do you find yourself personally challenged in terms of practicing patience in your own life? Well, I think as human beings, you know, we have a range of all kinds of emotions. So the challenge is always there to practice patience. And as I age and as I become older, what I find is I'm not so overthrown by the challenges, you know. I have a certain kind of record of my own self uh, knowing that I can work through these challenges and I can work through this kind of uh, irritations or, you know, annoyances or a little bit of a, you know, sort of a spiteful that comes up. So I don't judge them so much when they come up. So I think this kind of a little bit of the maturation that I think I have, you know, regardless of times here and times there, I feel I really value the patience practice. I know that the patience practice really, as an armor, kind of keeps my peace intact. And then I don't make a mess in my own mind. I'm able to keep my mind kind of clean and heart clean with the bodhicitta practice as a main practice. And then also I don't burn any bridges with the others and I don't do anything harmful with the speech or, of course, any other actions. You said bodhicitta practice is your main practice. What is that? Some people won't know what bodhicitta is or how you practice it. The bodhicitta is this practice of keeping the flame of a tender heart or the universal love uh, for all mankind or all living beings being kind of a essence of your spiritual path. How do you practice it? Knowing that there's so much seemingly differences in the outside, internally, how we are all made of the same mind that wishes to be happy, longs to be free from suffering, and we deserve to be happy, and we deserve to be free from suffering, and there's no really any gap, there's no any difference. So try to kind of uh, embrace that, uh, what I have a uh, love for myself, 
that love being spread for all humanity. And uh, what I have a concern for myself, that concern being kind of spread for all humanity as much as possible, though habitually and with the unconscious mind, we go immediately back into our ego and we go immediately back into our own self-care and we go immediately back into our own self-concern and we spend much of our time habitually in that way, but consciously trying to come back as much as possible to break away from that and try to sort of stay with the love for all and concern for all. So that's the kind of essence of the bodhicitta practice. It was interesting to hear you talk about your own experience with impatience now after all of these years of practice. And you said something to the effect of like, I don't judge myself when impatience comes up. It almost feels like the bodhicitta you've developed, this basic goodwill toward all beings, toward everyone, you can even send that toward the impatience as it comes up in your mind. When you meditate for a while, you become less and less judgmental with your thoughts and your emotions because, you know, you have more direct contact with your thoughts and emotions in your meditative state. So you cannot even possibly always be judging your thoughts and emotions. You have to have some space and you have to have some humor and you have to have some patience because they are always, you know, randomly occurring in your state. So you have to have, a you know, some... Uh, sons of, uh, they're just transitory, you know, and they just come and go, and they're just nothing but a thought or nothing but an emotion. But when uh, someone has not been observing their state and uh, closely in contact with their thoughts and emotions, when a thought comes, the thought itself poses a challenge, then there's the kind of a overlay of judgments that we have towards having the thought or emotion then that becomes even a furthermore problematic challenge. So as someone who has meditated for some time, the second one slowly kind of goes away as you know that you cannot be judging yourself just as to have a thought or just as to have an emotion because they are random. They just come up with the conditions uh, ripening and you just let that be a transitory and let that be a just thought and emotion and then you know, they're not problem just as to arise. They dissolve as well. I was thinking about this issue of patience while I was eating lunch before this interview. And I I noticed that for me, eating is an area where impatience comes up a lot. I'm rushing through the meal. I'm not even tasting it. I'm thinking about what's coming next. And then as a consequence, I maybe eat more than I need to eat because I'm not paying attention to how my body feels while I'm eating. Do you have any thoughts on, on the role of patience in eating? Well, I think this is a kind of interesting, and thank you for this question, because I find this somewhat ironic, because, you know, in the East, we have a lot of emphasis in eating, and, uh, you know, eating meals together, and meals being sort of most important. And in the West, and especially in the nuclear family, especially in the many people uh, who have a very sort of packed schedule, eating is the least important, you know. And uh, it's almost like a nuisance for a lot of people. They have to kind of do it. I find that to be very, very culturally uh, very shocking and a little bit of a uh, dumbfounding for myself. However, I think eating is important and needed not maybe perhaps uh, like how in some of the cultures where it's everything and it's the kind of focal point of every day of the families coming together. You know, one needs to eat with uh, some sense of uh, appreciation, I think. In my view, I think whatever we do, that's essential and that's also one's liking. If we have a you know connection and the connection has to be created, Connection happens and also it has to be created as well. It just is not only feasible to think connection is only there if it happens organically. And then if it doesn't happen organically, then there is no connection. So I think organically connection happens as well as also you need to create the connection that you want to create. For example, with eating, 
you need to create a connection of eating mindfully and as well as also with a deep sense of appreciation for the bite that you are going to have and the, what you're going to put inside of your own body to nourish yourself. And uh, whether it's just a sandwich or extended meal, that's up to you. But to have a sense of appreciation for what you're going to be doing, in this case, is essential. And uh, to have that kind of an approach of an appreciation for everything you do within a, organically, if there's a connection, that's being good, but also creating a connection, consciously appreciating every step of the way. Yes, we can, we can turn eating into a kind of meditation for sure. I think that's how the Zen practitioners do. And I think that's a really very, very powerful in this modern world to do with whatever we do. Yes, the, in the Zen meditation tradition, there is mealtimes or very much a meditation, but I think I've seen that in the Theravada world as well. Let me ask you another personal question, personal on my end, not yours. My meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, talks a lot about noticing rushing during the day, the feeling of rushing. I don't know if I'm going to be able to crystallize this into a question per se, but I do notice as I move through the day, as somebody who has a packed schedule, that there's this physical sensation, probably along the rib cage, I would say, of tension and tightness that comes up quite a bit of just rushing, toppling forward throughout the day. And if I'm not right on top of it, if I'm not aware that this is happening, it can diminish the quality of my work or the quality of my relationships. So I say that all of that because it seems directly relevant to patients to see if you have any thoughts. In the Tibetan Buddhism, we call it karmic wind, you know. Mm -hmm. There's always sort of a, some kind of karmic wind that is churning inside of your body that rides your thoughts, that rides your emotions, that rides your, you know, physical actions. So sometimes, uh, essentially, all of the meditation practice, as it goes deeper, has to come to connect with the nature. And the nature is not created Nature being nature, it's not created. Therefore, you know, if you are involved in this karmic wind and being carried by the karmic wind with the help of even more with the caffeine, then it's very difficult to connect with that nature, you know. So therefore, I think being still, however, maybe perhaps it takes a little time. In most of the cases, it takes uh, about uh, 15 to 20 minutes to completely sort of let go of that rushing or that kind of a speed or that kind of karmic wind to unwind itself. Then you get to the place where actually there's a minimum of that. And then you connect with the nature. And that's a great rejuvenation. There's no greater rejuvenation than that in one's life, I feel. There's no greater healing than that. And there's no really a greater sort of a a restoration of your mind and your brain, even out here, uh, than just being able to sort of get beyond that comic wind and then just rest in the nature. And so you have to know that in your case, how long it takes. Sometimes I think the posture is very helpful in our tradition. Hugging the knees with your palms is very helpful because all of the nerve ends are in the hand. So when you're hugging the knees as you're sitting on the chair or as you're sitting cross-legged, it sort of has a natural effect of winding down. So if you know that it takes 15 minutes, you have to be kind of a patient with 15 minutes. And uh, if you know it takes uh, 20 minutes, you have to be patient with the 20 minutes. And then if you get to the other side, you might want to not get out of that relaxation. So then again, you rest in there as the time allows you to do so, and then not indulge it. Because if you indulge it, then it affects your schedule and it affects your day and it affects your, your life. So, you know, not try to prolong it, but whatever the sort of time you have in hand, just kind of uh, sit uh, half of it working towards it, half of it being in it, and then maybe perhaps uh, coming off it, and then just really being uh, refreshed. 
I think I'm sure you have that experience. So you have to know how long does it take. And then in that time, not sort of feel impatient with yourself. But as you churn up, it takes time to churn down. You know, it's not like there's a magic to get into it right away. Yes. I mean, you described exactly the remedy that I reach for when it's possible, which is if I'm noticing that I'm being carried along by large, unwieldy gusts of karmic wind, one really useful thing to do is to take breaks to meditate throughout the day to let that energy unwind so that I can re-engage with whoever or whatever is in front of me in a more sane way. Much more of my conversation with Zigar Control Rinpoche right after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. I know one area of focus for you in the book that you've just written is giving instruction for having patience with physical pain during meditation. I believe you call the practice simmering. Simmering, yes. Meditation practice is built upon the self-awareness Awareness of what's happening with your physical body and the sensations that is occurring in your physical body or what's happening in your mind with your thought process and what kind of emotions they're being brought up and how you are reacting. So it's all observing and not getting unmeshed with what's happening. When you are observing without getting unmeshed, Though, of course, it's a little bit of a challenging in the beginning, but you could do it. Then you're simmering in the experience. All experience being transitory experience, they dissolve. You know, including the physical pain also dissolve. And then you find yourself in the other side with some kind of a sense of peace and uh, tranquility. And that's the power of the self-awareness. As we're trying to develop patience, do we need to be patient with ourselves? In other words, there may be times where I'm meditating, a physical pain comes up and I'm trying to be with it, but it's, you know, maybe I'm early on in my meditation practice and it's just too much. I can't, I, I've sat with this pain in my knee for five minutes, 10 minutes. Maybe now is the time to, you know, change my posture. 
Yeah, I think that's very uh, advisable. And I think for a lot of the uh, Western people, the cross leg is a very difficult. So I think sitting on the chair is a very good alternative. And it seems to have no really that major difference on the effects on the mind as how a mind needs to kind of get beyond the kind of activities and then connect with the nature. You've mentioned this phrase a couple of times, connecting with nature. Can you unpack for us exactly what you mean by that? Well, when you get beyond the phase of first concentrating on the breath, then observing your thoughts, then noticing your thoughts arising and ceasing without getting enmeshed with your thoughts or emotions, then you arrive in a place of your own awareness being expanded, expanded where there is no really any kind of a focal point, but it's a panoramic awareness. And you see your thoughts and your emotions occurring in your state in that awareness. And then it also dissolves. And then sometimes for a moment, you might not have a thought or emotion. And it's just a lucid awareness. And it's a present and it's clear. And it's very much sort of like you are feeling in the state of peace. A lot of people recall this as a sort of being at home. So that's the nature. And arriving it there is making the connection and connecting with it. So when you are meshed in the thoughts and when you are meshed in the emotions and when you are reacting, that nature is always there. Like the screen is always there while the movie is taking place, but we don't connect with that. But can't we view everything that happens in our mind from embarrassing little thoughts about whether we need to make a dentist appointment to petty resentments that come up to powerful emotions to, yes, the awareness that holds it all? Can't we view all of that as nature? When you are seated in that panoramic awareness and then when everything is sort of unfolding and you are not enmeshed in them, then everything is part of the nature. But when you are enmeshed with your thoughts, when you are enmeshed with your emotions and then, you know, when you are uh, reacting, that uh, panoramic awareness is uh, you're not self-aware. It's all happening in the kind of a, what we call it deep mental fog. But panoramic awareness, this arriving at panoramic awareness, it sounds to me, and it may sound to listeners, as something that's very hard to achieve. But if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying as long as we're not enmeshed in our thoughts, so like I might notice that I'm having a series of selfish or petty thoughts, but as long as I'm seeing them for what they are, then I'm not enmeshed, and then I'm seated in... Am I correct in assuming that at that point that's the natural awareness to which you're referring? Yes, that's right. Like if you're not enmeshed, yet at the same time you are able to see them as a transitory state that arises and dissolves, like writing a letter on the water, then most probably you are in the nature. I'm sensitive to your time. Are there questions about patients or about your book that I should have asked but did not ask? No, I think you asked very good questions. I'm so much uh, grateful for your show and uh, your quest to reach out to so many people to kind of just entice them to have a somewhat of an internal focus and internal discipline to observe what's happening in their own uh, mind and in their own uh, states. And then maybe perhaps find some interest in the discipline of uh, working with one's mind. Because we know in the modern world and we know in the capitalist country there's so much focus that goes on to outside, but very little focus goes into what's taking place inside of one's mind. That's almost like a you should already know it to be a good person or to be a decent person or to be an intelligent person. You know, you should almost uh, given that you should know uh, what's happening in your mind. But there's uh, so much that if you are not turning inwardly, that you don't know. And the whole work begins by turning inwardly. So your outreach uh, really 
in my view, contributes so much to the kind of a changing of the landscape of how people can be more uh, happier or content or find the kind of happiness and the contentment within in themselves rather than conditionally being brought in their lives. So I really, you know, am uh, such a uh, fan of your work in this way, and I'm so honored to be in this show. And of course, uh, patients practice or any of the Buddhist practice is in line with that. So, you know, I'm also very grateful to be able to, you know, join in in that effort. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. And and I think you articulated exactly what my goal is, which is to get people, well, really selfishly, to train myself to look inside, see what's going on so that I am not so owned by all of these as you call them correctly, sort of transitory thoughts and urges and emotions. And then, of course, once I've learned how to do that for myself and I continue to learn to try to teach other people how to do it, and that is just another way of describing this quality that you've just completed a book on, which is patience. And just in closing here, you talked about our modern world, and it strikes me just that it's worth acknowledging the obvious here, which is that our modern world seems designed to train us in the opposite of patience. You don't have to wait a week to see the next episode of your favorite show. It's gonna autoplay as soon as the episode you're watching has completed. You wanna find out what the circumference of the sun is? Just ask Siri or Alexa. We are in an era where boredom is optional because you've got a supercomputer in your pocket. Instant gratification has never become more instant. It seems like this capacity of patience that you're trying to help us build is under assault. It is really, it is really true. Though, of course, the modern facilities and the modern technology has enhanced our lives in many ways, but it has also really assault, just as you said, to kind of any discipline that we have with our own internal process of deepening our own knowledge and understanding as well as also cultivating certain kind of morals and ethics or any kind of qualities that we in the past cherish and have so much of an values to or being kind of all uh, now being somewhat assault in a sense not consciously but everybody's time goes to just constantly being engaged with the smartphones and keeping one's life fully sort of uh, run by the smartphones and the gadgets that is uh, more and more enticing. And how to break that, how one can sort of uh, separate uh, from that, we haven't really come to any good consensus. I think there's a talks about how the social media and all of this is changing our lives and all of the new ways that we are living with smartphones running constantly our lives and having that in our hands constantly to check and uh, be engaged. But I don't think there's a sort of uh, from the young age as a five, six to people who are in uh, 70s in the 80s, we haven't really quite come to find a kind of coherent understanding of how much we should be allowed in our lives. And it's not a problem and it's perhaps productive. And then beyond certain point, how much that is not healthy and it's not even productive, it just runs your life. We haven't come to any kind of a conclusive understanding globally and uh, it's being sort of uh, going and going and going more and more every day in our precious time on this earth being lost to just being meshed with the technology. Well said and as my friend Catherine Price has said uh, we're running a global I believe it's Catherine who said this might be actually Manoush Zemarodi, but either Catherine or Manoush or both has said that we're running a global, unregulated, unplanned experiment with technology and what it does to our brains and our minds. And it's... Um, it's a very addictive, you know. Yes, it's very addictive. It's a really very, very addictive. And it just 
consumes our precious life on this earth to do meaningful things. Yeah. Technology can be powerfully great in many powerful ways, and I don't think either of us is a Luddite, but there are lots of challenges as well, and one of them is, of course, to patience. So I appreciate you coming on the show and giving us some tools for boosting our capacity for patience. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. It's great to see you, and uh, best of luck for all your effort. Thanks again to Rinpoche. Really appreciated him coming on. This show is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikamar, Maria Wirtel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. And as always, a big hearty shout out to my guys from ABC News, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday. We have a fascinating episode on tap. It's on burnout. And we've got a repeat guest. Her name is Leah Weiss. See you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.